Welcome, welcome, welcome to the World History Podcast. I'm Mr. Hall. Today, we are going to finish up part two of this industrialized economics lesson. Uh, so we're going to cover a couple of more different forms of economic theories that are going to develop after the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and as I stated in the previous lecture, uh, we're still moving along this spectrum from very little government intervention to more government intervention. And so in the previous unit, you know, I talked about, or excuse me, the previous lesson, I talked about Adam Smith uh, and the Wealth of Nations with a very laissez-faire or hands-off approach. Uh, we talked about Thomas Malthus and David Ricardo and some of their theories about wealth distribution and livelihoods and so on. And today we're going to wrap up by talking about th um, three other forms uh, of economics that develop here now, and that is utilitarians. We're going to talk about socialism or utopian socialism, uh, as well as scientific socialism, aka communism. So, uh, I recommend having the Industrialized Economics Part 2 lecture in front of you. Um, and when you're done with this, please remember to make sure that you answer the questions that are attached uh, to this lesson as well. Without further ado, here we go. First, we're going to talk about utilitarians. Now, utilitarians and utopians, these are two different types of economic groups that we are going to talk about in this class, are different. And I need to emphasize that difference between utilitarians and utopians, okay? So starting with utilitarians, the most basic concept for utilitarians is that they want the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of citizens. Now, utilitarians are still a, a rather laissez-faire approach to the economy, meaning that they do not think the government should intervene in the economy unless absolutely necessary. Now, what utilitarians view as being necessary is really to prevent businesses from doing active harm to their employees or to their customers. Uh, now, utilitarians argue that workers are able to create reforms to their work environments based on the political process. So, in other words, if something is going to be of, as, of enough concern to the general population, then the general population will through the political process, modify businesses and the way that they're supposed to be run. One of the best examples that I could give to this would be an example of like HIPAA-type regulations, uh, of safety regulations, um, that employers would be more obligated to have safety part or safety regulations and that in their businesses because those would be the types of issues that the general public would feel are really in the best interest. That, that this is an example where government intervention would be necessary. But utilitarians might not necessarily be for things like environmental regulations. They might not really be for things like welfare programs or unemployment insurance or things like that just yet. Utilitarians are not necessarily about providing basic needs to everybody, more about preventing businesses from doing any kind of harm but allowing businesses to just flow and ebb naturally, to, to come about and to work naturally. Our next form here, kind of looking at what we, we start to see is what is socialism beginning to arise. And what's socialism? The first concept here is that capitalism itself, this, this process of buying and selling goods, of, of deciding you know, based on supply and demand, um, and who has the ability to purchase goods, 
socialism argues that capitalism creates this huge gulf between the rich and the poor. Socialism basically theorizes that capitalism only works if you already have capital to use. If you don't have capital to spend, then you do not get to partake in that capitalist system, meaning that the poor just continually get poorer and poorer and poorer. Now, socialists believe that people should own and operate the means of certain forms of production. Now, this is not, this is not communism, where the people own everything. Um, the best example that I can think of here would be when a certain industry gets too large. Socialists would believe that that then needs to be taken over by the government or, or by some you know, employee-run entity. You know, socialists believe that the economy should run for the benefit of all, not just the rich few. Uh, one of the best examples of socialism that we could see actually um, in Europe would be their healthcare systems that their healthcare systems in the early 1900s, actually during the 1918 flu pandemic, they started to realize that healthcare in Britain and Germany and other countries became so important that it is no longer something that is voluntary for people to purchase, that it is now something that we need. It's, it's like having water or electricity in your home, that it is something that, that everybody needs to have equal unfettered access to. And because of that, then, the government basically becomes the healthcare provider. And, and by doing that, they make sure that anybody at any income level has access to the same types uh, and quality of, of healthcare coverage as the upper echelons in society. So socialism is not necessarily about controlling or regulating businesses. You know, utilitarians, they step in to stop a business from doing harm. Socialists believe, you know, they step in to provide goods to everybody who needs it, those who cannot partake in the capitalist system because they do not have enough capital um, to be able to do that. Here's where we move into our utopians. Utopians sound very, very similar to socialists because they, they kind of are. They share a lot of different themes here. Um, but how utopians and utilitarians are different, here's what I really want to emphasize. Utilitarians as I said, want the most amount of happiness for the most amount of people. Utopianism is not about creating perfect equality in a perfect world, okay? So if you ever put that on a test, you're going to be wrong. Utopianism on, uh, uh, that was created by people like Robert Owen argue that society can only continue or have equality when those differences in social classes are eliminated or when the, 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 the visible differences are eliminated. What does that mean? Well, this is not talking about trying to eliminate wealth. We're not, we're not getting rid of the, the, the wealthiest of the wealthy. What utopians are arguing is that when you begin to provide the basic, basic necessities and guarantee the most basic necessities to all individuals, and you eliminate that form of disparity, so that everybody has the needs that they, they need to survive, then that is when you will see the social and, and economic strife begin to, to, to dissipate. So Robert Owen goes so far as to actually try to prove this theory. Uh, Robert Owen, somebody who, who, who was actually born into a rather poor family, pulls himself up by his bootstraps uh, and becomes a very successful mill owner, decides to develop a, a, a model town to show how this kind of utopian system would work. And so in New Lenark, Scotland, 
Robert Owen establishes this model village, and and all of the people who live in this village are employed by, or generally all of them are employed by him. Um, they are working within his mill, but he is going to build homes for his workers. He is going to provide schooling and education for their children and childcare during the day. He's going to pay his employees rather well. You know, they're not making as much money as he is. Obviously, they're 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 employees who work on the line. They're not somebody, they're not the business owner, but they're still paid a very fair wage. And so by combining these three things, by giving all of his employees a guaranteed place to live with a roof and shelter over their head, um, guaranteeing that they have some type of education and childcare, and, and by paying his employees relatively well, he finds that a few things happen. His employees are able to focus more during the workday. His employees are more productive at the same time, they're getting paid better. And what do they do with that money? They go and they purchase products. And generally, those products are his products, meaning that that money is going right back into his business. And so what Robert Owen actually did with this is, is demonstrate that his socialist or utopianist view of society could work and could still be very, very profitable. Robert Owen was still one of the richest individuals in Scotland. So even while he provided this much to his employees, um, it, it still proved his business can be very, very prof profitable. You know, I always like to think back to certain examples. Um, you know, people always talk about Henry Ford here in the United States, how Henry Ford paid his employees rather well and what a lot of those employees do. They went and they bought the cars that he had produced. Uh, so it kind of fed back into him. Now, you know, Henry Ford was nowhere near a utopian the way that Robert Owen was. Um, but there's another example about how when an employer actually does invest back in the employee itself, not just their business, but their employee, uh, about how that can increase the profits that that business owner has coming in. The final form of economics that I want to take a look at is this, this scientific socialism, also known as communism. Now, for those of you who are in class this year, I believe I got to my communist activity with you guys one day uh, and tried to show you guys like how Karl Marx's view of communism really did play out um, or should have played out, how, how, how his perfect view of communism would work. Now, I, obviously, I, I always tell all my students um, I am a communist. I firmly believe in communism, but I'm also a realist, and I understand that true Karl Marxian communist, communism is never, ever, ever going to actually be able to happen on this planet. Uh, any form of communism we have ever seen is a warped, twisted Frankenstein's monster of communism. It's not actual Marxism. Um, so, you know, as much as I would love to live in a society where it's 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 all you know rainbows and and, and gumdrops. Uh, this is never actually going to really happen. Now, Karl Marx trying to use what he termed scientific socialism, so looking at the socialist philosophies of, of the government providing the basic needs for everybody, um, but trying to apply these to what he saw as different historic trends, uh, he and Frederick Engels are going to write in the Communist Manifesto his view of how the working class would eventually be the ruling class. So he argues, Marx argues, that history is just the struggle of the haves and the have-nots, that it's constantly the struggle of who has access to resources and who, who doesn't, who's denied access to those resources. And he argued that the current time periods of the Industrial Revolution was becoming this huge boiling point, that by packing people into these factories, by lowering their wages, by decreasing their uh, their livelihoods for the majority of the population, that he, that it is putting more and more stress on our social and economic system, 
And that eventually the working class themselves, because there is more of them around the world, would unite together and overthrow the business class, the ruling elites, and establish an equal society for everybody. Um, now, you know, Marx believed that this could be some type of violent over like revolution, could be some type of just basic uh, peaceful political revolution, but either way, we do know he is going to fail. And that brings us here to our last slide today. Like, why does communism really fail? Well, there's two major reasons, two major assumptions that Marx has that are going to prove to be false. Um, and kind of like how I explained with people that I spoke about in our previous lecture that these, these gentlemen are right all the way up until the point where they're wrong, I will say the same thing about Karl Marx. Karl Marx was correct until history changed and he was wrong. So Marx's assumptions, look at his first one. His first assumption is that the misery of the, what he called the proletariat, so the misery of the working class, would start a worldwide revolution. That, you know, the working class in Germany and the working class in Britain and the working class in France would all come together in their misery about being in that same social class and would overthrow the business owners, and would overthrow the elites in each of their societies. You know, that makes sense. I know I've talked to you guys before and throughout your classes and, so, uh, and throughout all of my social studies courses. And, and one of the major themes that I have is that nothing unites people together better than their common hatred or anger for something. And then that seems pretty simple. If everybody's angry at the ruling class and the elites, then we will all eventually come together and overthrow it. But what he didn't see coming here is that in the very, very early pieces of the 1900s, certain governments around the world are going to start to work to improve working conditions. There's a couple of things that happen here. Those working conditions are going to improve mildly. Very, very, very mildly. Okay, this is not, I'm not trying to say that solutions are happening here. But we are starting to see the average workday be reduced from 12 to 16 hours a day to now 10 to 14 hours a day. We're starting to see people be guaranteed one or two sick days a year. You know, it's one or two out of 365 days. We are, we, we are seeing moderate moves towards change. And at the same time, in the very early parts of the 1900s, most of the most dangerous forms of labor of the Industrial Revolution are now moving out to the colonies. They're being removed from Britain's society, from American society, from French society, and they are now being sent, those same kinds of industrialized jobs are being sent to India, to South America, to Asia, and now it is, it's basically the Europeans forcing that kind of difficult labor on an, on an outside group so that even the lowest lifestyles in those, those nations, their, their work and their lifestyles are going to very mildly improve because those kinds of jobs are no longer need to be done by the white Europeans. So like, this is what I mean by that misery, that common misery across political borders never comes around because of these, these couple factors that sort of lower the misery index of a lot of people even if it just lowers them by a degree or two. You know, instead of having a fever of 102 degrees, now it's just a fever of 100 degrees. No longer are we worried about going to the emergency room uh, because our system's about to break down. It, it's now it's more manageable. The other, the second major failure is that Marx, is, Marx believes that workers will unite across national borders. 
that a a worker in Germany will commiserate with a worker in Britain and a worker in the United States. They will all agree that they are one working class. What he did not see coming was the virulent rise of nationalism. And so instead of a German worker sympathizing with a British worker, we now have the German worker hating their life, but still vehemently believing that they are better than a British worker. And on the other side, you have a British worker vehemently defending that they are better than a German worker. So we see people become more loyal to their nationality, to their political nation, than we do to their current living and social conditions. Um, Where Marx's theory requires that they remain angry together, that they remain united across those national borders. So so when those national borders, those those political boundaries basically become more solidified, uh, it, it cuts Marx's theories apart. So again, this is this is what I'm trying to show you that these two these two aspects, Marx was right. Karl Marx was correct until other events began happening. Um, now that does not necessarily mean that communism can continue to happen or, or would have played out the entire way that Marx had thought it would. I'm just saying about the the beginning of some type of communist or socialist forms of revolution that. That is why they didn't happen in every country. It's why it didn't happen, especially to the extent that Marx had thought it would um, in every country. All right, well, that's all that I have here for you guys today. This is the last lecture here for this week. Uh, This is the last lecture for this unit. I want to note, I know in your note packet, there are a couple of mentions about Charles Darwin. Um, I have decided to take that out this year. Uh, I don't ever test students on that information. I never test students on, on information about Darwinism or social Darwinism or evolution. Uh, I have that in there to talk mostly about the social Darwinist piece uh, because it's the social Darwinism that we talk more about when we get into World War II and obviously the Holocaust and the Nazis. Um, But I will bring up that of what is necessary for you guys to understand when we get to that. Um, So please just forgo the piece in your packet that is asking about Charles Darwin. Don't worry about filling that stuff in. Um, No points will be taken off. uh, And that stuff will not be on an exam. Okay, so we're going to end here for this unit. Next week, uh, I will put out some form of review for you guys to do next week. And do not forget that your test is going to be next week on February 5th. It will be open for 24 hours from midnight to midnight. So if any of you have any concerns about taking the test that day, you need to reach out to me before 3 p.m. on Thursday, February 4th. If I do not hear from you by 3 p.m. on Thursday, February the 4th, I will assume that whatever you did in that test is your final grade, if you took it or if you didn't. All right. Other than that, that's all I have. Have a great day, everybody. Keep your name on the paper, except for doing good deeds.